perhaps differences with people who are into animal liberation, people are in, who are into veganism. Are we uh, uh, more sensitive than other people? Or are we simply uncovering the sensitivity that all of us must have as children? As a vegan, do you ever feel like you're living in a parallel universe, aware of things that many others don't even seem to notice, let alone acknowledge? I'm Chrissy Benson, host of the Vegan Posse podcast. We talk with vegans from around the globe who, like you, are living lives of integrity and compassion with an eye toward justice through their personal stories. You'll come to see that you're not an outlier. In fact, you're part of an entire posse of individuals who aren't just keeping the peace, they're creating it through their food choices and beyond. You won't be saddling up, but you're in for the ride of your life. Welcome to the Vegan Posse. Hey Posse, just a few words from me, your host, Chrissy Benson. Looking for the perfect holiday gift for your book-loving friends? Pick up a copy of my novel, Marrying Myself, by me, Christine Melanie Benson. It's a fun read with substance and lots of laughs, and it's even got a vegan protagonist. It's available on Amazon and everywhere else. And while you're at it, please leave a nice review on Amazon. It really helps. Or get a personalized signed copy through my website, christinemelaniebenson.com. And for those of you who've asked if I offer coaching, I do. I offer health coaching, internal family systems or IFS coaching, and holistic personal coaching. Email me at christinembenson at gmail.com for more info. Finally, if you enjoy being part of the vegan posse, please like this podcast, subscribe, and share it with your friends. Together, we can build our movement of people who aren't just keeping the peace, but creating it through our food choices and beyond. Most of all, know that during this holiday season, you are not alone. You've got a posse. Thanks, guys. Now, on to our episode. Today, the Vegan Posse welcomes Lee Hall. Lee has been vegan for almost 40 years. Lee worked for many years as a legal officer, as a board member for several nonprofits, and as an adjunct animal law and environmental law professor at Rutgers Law School and Widener Delaware Law. Lee even wrote the entry for the Encyclopedia for the UN Sustainable Development Goals titled Non-Human Rights and Human Sustainability. A frequent presenter at Vegan Summerfests, Lee is the author of On Their Own Terms, Animal Liberation for the 21st Century. Check out Lee's studio for the art of animal liberation at patreon.com slash Lee Hall. Lee, welcome to the Vegan Posse. Are you ready for the ride of your life? Well, let's see where we could ride together and maybe take <laughs> some listeners with us. Sure. Excellent. Yeah, everyone's invited. <laughs> so you've been vegan for 40 years, which is amazing to me. And I, I'd love to go way back um, to when you were a kid. Did you ever... Did you ever think about animals or the animals in our food system when you were growing up? I did and I didn't. Um, I think that you've mentioned this idea that there's a parallel universe and we really don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And every once in a while, we maybe catch glimpses 
or realize that something is going on that we haven't asked questions about, but then we sort of go on with our lives. Our parents sort of help us along to make sure we fit in well with society. And that means not asking questions about where whoever is on our plate came from. Um, but I did, yes, I did in one occasion, uh, and we talked about this together at Vegan Summerfest, I was taken to a bullfight as a young child. And I was uh, traumatized by it, as I believe everyone should be. Uh, and one of the ways my parents tried to get me over the trauma of seeing this torture was to tell me that the meat from the flesh from the bull would go to feed poor children. So at that point, I, at least some part of my mind drew the connection that what we eat was a who, and that somehow we are brutally suppressing, subjugating, the other beings who we wind up ingesting. Um, so I wonder now, you know, yes, um, um, this year I'm becoming a 40-year vegan, but I'm wondering why it didn't happen then and uh, how all that structure that's in place just kept me going along um, until I was 21, 22, and I heard the word vegan for the first time. And that's how I had a framework for the first time ever in my life to start questioning what was on who was on the plate right that makes so much sense we do need that framework we need a we need a context because often it just doesn't doesn't even occur to us that we can question certain certain concepts or certain traditions do you do you remember that bullfight I forgot that story that you had told me at Summerfest, but now I now I remember it now that you mentioned I, it. Do you I remember do remember, it? yeah, I do remember it. And I, I can't think I can't think about it for very long because you know the trauma comes back. Um that is one of the things that we talked about when we met. We met in a session that we're we were dealing with uh trauma and the perhaps differences with people who are into animal liberation, people are in, who are into veganism, um, are we uh, uh, more sensitive than other people? Or are we simply uncovering the sensitivity that all of us must have as children? Right, it's it's a question I wonder about too. I, I tend to think that maybe it's, maybe it's both, depending on the person, because I do think people have different levels of sensitivity and different, you know, we're all, we're all so different on an individual basis. Um, but yeah, it, it's an interesting question to ponder. So for people listening, I first met Lee, I had certainly come across your work before, and I, I believe I'd seen you present at a previous Vegan Summerfest, but we connected again this past summer at Vegan Summerfest when you and your friend Harold Brown were hosting a workshop geared toward vegans who are sensitive. <laughs> and I remember seeing that in the program and thinking, well, that's definitely me. And what a quirky idea for a workshop at, 
a vegan conference, but I'm in, you know, and I thought it was going to be a handful of people. And instead the room was packed, you know, with, with all these sensitive people. It kind of reminded me of an author talk I went to see years ago with the author, Susan Cain, who wrote the book, Quiet. So it was another, you know, packed room full of introverts because the book Quiet is about introversion. Um, how did, just to di diverge a little bit, how did you and Harold come to host that workshop and how did you come up with that idea? I think I need to credit Harold for, for, for coming up with, yes, we need to propose this idea to the, to Summerfest uh, asks every year, they specifically want new ideas. And it's something that no one had done. And we've had quite, a, and, and we talked also uh, with a couple of other friends, uh, James and Jenny, who they uh, run a website called the humanemyth.org, Humane Myth. And one of the things that we all talk about together when we get on our Zoom meetings and hang out is this idea of particular sensitivity that we, sensitivities that we have. And uh, so we got to talking about our relationships with uh, highly sensitive, the, the idea of highly sensitive people, which is really something that Harold Brown studies and I really can't speak to too much, but Harold wanted to bring that to Summerfest. Um, but I've been looking at the idea and Jenny and James uh, uh, pointed me to some of the people who are working on this. And the, the idea is synesthesia or ideasthesia. Uh, Danko Nikolic has said that these various forms are under one umbrella and it's called ideasthesia. And what it is, is there's some sense, some, some, some sensory perception, but it comes into you from an unexpected sense. So for example, we think we have five senses, right? Um, what are they? Sight, hearing, touch, smell, and taste, if I got those right. But we also talk about sensitivity in terms of feeling and feeling is an emotion. So we say feeling, you know, sometimes we mean tactile, but sometimes we say feeling meaning how we feel inside. So it's not really one of those five categories. And if synesthesia means, say, you see a number and you associate, you so associate it with a color, all right, or you hear a song and that looks like an image to you. And so people can have all different forms of this. Uh, but what if you take in a sight or a smell or some other, you, there's some other uh, stimulus and you feel it as though you're there, as though you're in the room. Okay, so that's what happens to me. And so, for example, if there's a particularly uh, hideous video about some sort of trauma, some sort of exploitation, or even a lot of films that are very popular with people, but they have some difficult parts in the films, right? To me, I can't shake it for days. So 
to me, I was in that place that was happening with me standing there. That's how I feel. Um, so uh, you were saying before, we're not, we are all different. We're on a spectrum of sensitivity. And so for me as a vegan, if I see, if I encounter uh, films that are put out there to perhaps inspire other people to become vegan by showing the abuse, the torment that happens to animals as they're being made into uh, products, I can't watch those. I have to be very careful with my social media feed. There are certain things that I could not post on Facebook because I physically couldn't make my fingers do it. I know I couldn't return to my Facebook page and see it. That makes it harder to be a vegan activist. And which I, I guess I should say, I'm a, you know, I'm here, I'm Lee, I'm a vegan activist. <laughs> and so is Harold, who has to some degree the same issue. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about this a lot. And how do we deal with this? And how do we discuss it with other vegans who maybe are living in this torment all the time because of what they've chosen to champion? Right, right. Because there's, I think, Steve, um, animal advocate, um, you'll probably know this reference. I can't recall her name offhand, but she said something to the effect you know, don't refuse to bear with your eyes what they're forced to endure with their bodies. Do you have you heard that quote before? I've heard that. I want to say what Margaret Mead, or I, I'll have to look it up and, and find out. But it was basically saying, you know, um, look, we know it's unpleasant to look at, but they have to bear it with their bodies. So don't turn away just because it's unpleasant to look at. And so I think that's like, I get where she's coming from on that, or she was coming from on that. And at the same time, like you said, we have to be attuned to our own responses and, our, and the effect that it has on us. Because if we're immobilized and, and you know highly sensitive and paralyzed by the sight of these things, we have to just know that about ourselves and ask honestly, is this helping me <laughs> help the animals uh, by continuing to watch this? Um, I'm probably less, you know, less sensitive than you in terms of I meet someone less sensitive than me because I'm used to being the, the sensitive person in the room. Um, so I'm not affected to the level that you describe. Um, and so for me, I do feel like occasionally it is good for me to remind myself what's happening because I can lose touch with it. I can lose touch with the visceral reality. And yet it's it's a fine line. And it sounds like you've really wrestled with, with that for yourself. Was, was it hard to just come to accept your own sensitivity? Um, well, I, I mean, I explore various aspects of it sort of a, in a sociological context um for example and and i want to respect what you said um you're coming back to the videos from time to time because it's important to remember um who we're working for who we're who we're advocating for um 
And I know that because a lot of my vegan friends have told me that these videos have made a lot of people think about these things to the point where they've actually become vegan when they weren't before. So I wanna respect that we all have our different perspectives on this. Um, one of the things that I would ask is, when say something traumatic happens in a human context and it is shown and it is passed through social media, sort of like a catalyst for activism to champion whoever the victim is, the class of victims, right? Um, sometimes when it's a human victim, the parents or some loved one will see it and step in and say, that's not how I want my loved one who was tormented or killed to appear. I want you to look at my loved one doing something free, free-spirited, something that this person loved to do during life. Please stop showing someone I loved as an abject victim or being battered. And so we look at what happens in the human context and then we ask ourselves um, to show other beings being tormented on a constant basis too. I mean, because a lot of this is happening in the, in the moment we work in. Um, is this a touchstone, a catalyst, or does it become desensitized to some mm -hmm. extent? I mean, are we used to seeing other beings only as victims? And that leads us to some some other questions. Of course, it uh, it it leads us to think about the moderators in social media and their job of having to go through torture scenes and filter them. And there are people that this is outsourced to in other countries who talk about the trauma. Um, that they deal with as moderators on social media. So we need to ask ourselves what's going on as this media is being trans transferred from person to person on social media, who is dealing with this on a constant basis. We need to ask us, as you said, ask ourselves how we are processing this trauma, if we're exposing ourselves to it all the time. And we need to ask the broader question of whether it's a good idea to nearly exclusively represent other animals as victims. Or do we need to be spending more time presenting animals in ideal situations, in situations of freedom? Oftentimes I find that vegans have seen many, many videos of cows, but they have no idea who the free living ancestors of cows were. Right. I myself don't. I, I was listening to a podcast recently that started discussing that question, but I never got, I never got to the answer. So maybe you can share that with us. Well, in the case of cows, their free living ancestors were the aurochs. And aurochs is a singular or plural, the same word applies. Um, they were tremendously sized beings. They were about the uh, about double the size of cows that we know today in 
and commerce. And so once upon a time when they roam the earth, because they don't anymore, we've driven them extinct. Uh, and we've re we most of the biomass, the weight of living beings on this earth is cows. The weight of bodies of animals we purpose breed after wiping out their free living ancestors so that we've taken away the ancestral community from the face of the earth. They can never go back to it. We can never point to the aurochs. They're gone forever. There are, and, 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 and what, what this was about was uh, they used, they were big, they were, they were assertive, they could run through a village and trample it. And so our human ancestors decided, well, if we could kill them and feed, if we could kill one to feed a village, right? But if they gang up, they could trample a village. Well, then we need to figure out a way to impose docility on them so that we could use them as food. So what do we do? We bred them into smaller and smaller and more docile animals until there was almost just about nothing left of them, their, their, their wild natures. Uh, but I was on a farm once and walking across a field and they must have something, something some ancestral memory because they chased me across the field. And if you've ever been chased across a field by cows, you realize it's terrifying. So you sense who they were a long time ago. Now there are other animals, for example, sheep or chickens or pigs and their ancestral communities are still on the face of the earth. But so we're taking up more and more space away from free living ancestral communities, right? We're using it to put our own animal agribusiness on. So we're taking the space away from those who could be free and we're building up. And, and in animal advocacy, you see a lot of people saying, can't we get them at least giving them more space? Well, that there's a zero sum game there. So we're taking space away from wildness, right? And many of us have never seen, wouldn't know what a pig's ancestral community, the wild free living boars look like. And so you see a lot of times in animal advocacy, you see this idea that the perfect vegan world would be us holding a little pink pig. And you see a lot of activists, right? And celebrities, right? Holding a little pink pig. It's almost iconic now. But if you look at the free living boars, you'll see that you, that you never see them singly. That's not how they are. So that you would never see an individual free living boar, a baby boar, right? A, a boarlet, <laughs> you would never see that because they are in family groups of at least eight or 10 or 12 and sometimes up to 100. And they have this caramel fur with brown stripes through it. So they don't look like the little baby pink pig. Um, and they're going through the woods, right? They're going through the forests and they're jumping over streams and there are crowds of them. And that is what the ideal in a vegan world would actually look like. So we've got so far away from championing, championing uh, who they would be on their terms. And that's what I'd like to kind of return uh, veganism to.
And how do you, I mean, how do you envision that? Because obviously so much has changed. We've obliterated so much of nature and so much of their natural habitat that in many ways it, it's an impossible task. How do you navigate that, you know, quandary? I think navigate is a really good word, at least for me, me uh, navigate. And this year, that's a really good word. Because in 2023, I finally did it. I finally gave up my car. And now, and because this is one answer to the question, I think. It's understanding, and I'm going to answer it from my perspective, understanding myself as my animal nature. If I can try to the best of my ability to understand my own ancestral calls, right? My own, I'm a primate, I'm a human being. So my ancestors were primates and we live in a late stage, hyper self-domesticated society. So it's very hard for us to think who we would be if we lived in a world where we respected other animals on their terms. And I realized that one of the things that I needed to do was go through the world without a car. I, why would I want to put, keep myself in a box of glass and metal that moved other animals to one side or the other of concrete? So now, and, and I, this is since we're talking in October right now, and this I did in June of this year, I'm starting to feel what it must be like some of the time to live as an animal, another as part of my bio community. I'll stand in the middle of the road sometimes and a truck will be coming and I know that family of deer ahead is going to cross and I will stop traffic to make sure that they don't get hit. And so now my, and then a lot of people just want to whiz by corners, you know, practically run into me. But now I think, you know, my body is a message. It's saying, slow down, have some respect, we're here. So I think part of it is just understanding ourselves as part of animal life. Right, right. And we ourselves, we human beings, <laughs> our modern day environment is so different from the environment in which we evolved. And that's, that's something that I've become rather obsessed with is how do we find happiness and peace you know, when there's such a mismatch between the environment in which we, you know, all our instincts came to be. <laughs> and particularly particularly with regard to the aspect of community and interconnectedness with other human beings. Because, you know, we, we talk about community, we, we pay a lip service, we recognize the importance of being connected with other people, but, we don't have that and never will have the sort of you know reliance on other other people in our close circles you know who we know our whole lives and whose you know survival depends on us and vice versa so it's it, it's so so interesting um how you know how do you deal with with being a human <laughs> in today's world 
I think we're getting to the crux of some of the most important vegan questions that we could ask. Uh, one of the important things to, to be able to carry kind of an animal liberation mindset in life has to involve us supporting each other. It has to involve understanding the sacredness of friendships and having each other's backs. Uh, I, I think that, you know, when we go to Vegan Summerfest every year in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, there's something that happens there usually. And among, it's not, it's not universal to 600 or 700 people who are there at the conference, but we find it in pockets and it's love. It's getting together with people who are in our family, our, our, our chosen family. And it's knowing that we have each other's backs and that we refresh each other's minds uh, just by seeing each other. Because we live in this competitive society. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the nonprofit world reflects the same dynamic. There's a lot of competition. You're nodding, so you must know, you must have experienced this. In the nonprofit world, in the world of social movements, unfortunately, a lot of us revert to the whole way of we're taught to compete and compare and make money and impress each other that way. It's very difficult. I agree. I contemplated a career shift into nonprofit about a decade ago and, and worked as a grant writer for a couple of years for a nonprofit women's organization outside of Boston. And I was so naive going into that. I really thought the nonprofit sector would be different and that it would just be all these, you know, mission focused, egoless you know, human beings who are just committed to doing good and boy, boy, was that not, was that not quite the case. Um, so I feel pretty, pretty naive in hindsight, but yes, I've definitely seen that, that concept in action. Um, so going back, you mentioned that when you actually did go vegan, you were about 21, did you say? Uh, turn, turning 22. Turning 22, okay, and what was it that, you know, prompted you to make that leap? Uh, it was a who. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I met the first vegan I had ever met in my life, knowingly. I mean, maybe I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> but this is 1983 and there weren't too many. Uh, so at the time, uh, I went to a rock concert and it was important for me to be in this auditorium because a gift, it was a, my ticket was a gift from a friend. And I was very excited about seeing the show. And it was, it was late in the year. Uh, the holidays were coming kind of like right how we are right now, you know, anticipating the holidays. And there was a leaflet on every single chair in the auditorium. So I was early and the first thing I did was start reading this leaflet. And it was about all the ways we use as humans, we use animals for the coming holidays. And it was sort of getting us to think about that in terms of use, in terms of subjugation. 
which that's the key, right? It's that's the, the mind shift. And so it mentioned fur coats, for example, as gifts. It mentioned puppies or kittens being given to children as gifts. It mentioned what was going to be on the table, or should we say who was going to be on the table? And so all and the what we'd see on TV, horse races and so forth. And so yeah, I'm reading this thing. And um, I was really naive about these things. I, I hadn't been taught to question them. And so, you know, reading this leaflet was, I could tell something important was happening in my life and in my mind. And I said, who would do this? So I looked around the auditorium and there was somebody there with a kind of a bag, you know, a sling, right? And it was, you know, bulging with something. And I said, aha. <laughs> so we spent the entire concert in the lobby so I could only hear what was going on if somebody opened or closed the door and the entire time I listened to somebody who had become vegan about a year ago and by the end of this conversation I said you know I, I don't really know how to do it but I know that I would like to be where you are in life and Robin, Robin Lane was the name of this person said, and we're still friends 40 years later. Robin said, um, I'll show you how, where do you work? And so the next day I had somebody helping me pick out lunch and it went from there. Yeah. Uh, and this, where was this? Where were you geographically? I was working in London. In London. And oh, wow. Wow. Was it a Morrissey concert or? Who, who was the yeah, it was kind of a little known band called the Poison Girls. <laughs> nice. And the, the lead singer was named Vice Versa. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so excited. Um, we still listen to that. Robin, Robin listens to oh, Vice Versa. Awesome. Oh, a very feminist, very powerful punk influenced band. Um, and, and as, you know, being a feminist, um, I thought of myself as a feminist when I was, well, I was a feminist, I still am, but then I always will be. But after I heard Robin tell me about how I have been a member of the oppressor class for 22 years, I said, uh, well, I can't call myself a feminist unless I find out more from you and decide how I'm going to change my life. I can't continue as part of a master class. So how was that transition for you? It was hard. Uh, I knew I was, I mean, I was committed, but I think any any transition like that is hard. There's so much emotion involved in it. Uh, to even a decade later, uh, after my mother passed away, I've been a vegan for an entire decade, right? And I'm going through, I somehow found myself walking through the cheese aisle in a grocery store late at night. And I saw a kind of a cheese, which doesn't deserve a name, so I won't name it. And I just had some memories of my mother bringing this cheese to me and making something with it. And we were talking about it and I'm like a lot came back to me. And somehow I got tempted to eat cheese. And, I mentioned this to another vegan who said, 
All right, you're having a problem with temptation. Well, I was having a problem with everything. My mind wasn't clicking right. My, I was grieving. My mother had passed. So my friend said, well, go in, back to grocery aisle and stand there and imagine that calf being dragged away from the cow whose milk that cheese was made from. And then say in the middle of the grocery aisle, preferably aloud, and the person said the word, F you, calf. And then if you can still pick up the cheese, go ahead. So I went back there and I was ready to say this terrible thing aloud and I never had the temptation again. Oh, wow. Yeah, you, you bring up such a salient point, like, because we do have so many, so many memories around food. And then when we go vegan and see those products, not as food, but as the products of horrible, unconscionable suffering, we lose, we lose the purity and the beauty of those memories in any way, in so many ways, like maybe not entirely, but they're tainted. And it's, it really is, it's such a loss. It really is such a loss because like you were saying about considering yourself a feminist, it is tough to, you know, have those illusions about ourselves burst and, you know, suddenly realize like, oh, in that moment where I was just focused on this happy occasion, you know, I was a perpetrator, I was celebrating with other perpetrators and, you know, we were ignorant, but we were, you know, we were participating in evil, <laughs> not to sound overly dramatic, but yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot to wrestle with. So yeah, I, I appreciate you just being willing to go there and just, you know, being able to describe the depth of what this, what this change means and what this illumination in our minds means for the rest of our lives. Like I, I feel so lucky to have been in a position to ask some questions, been curious enough and be open enough and committed enough to, to make this change. I feel so, so lucky. And at the same time, yeah, we, we are in that parallel universe. Um, I know you know you understand. And of course, that's why I, why I launched this podcast. Um, so you ended up writing a book called on their own terms, bringing animal rights philosophy down to earth. So when did you write that book? And can you tell us a little about it? Yes, uh, I wrote that book when I was still working with a nonprofit called Friends of Animals. Uh, and, then, and after I left Friends of Animals, um, I decided I would rewrite it entirely. And so, and I changed the name, well, the subtitle, I changed the subtitle, and it's now called On Their Own Terms, Animal Liberation for the 21st Century. So you see what I did, I, I changed, yes, you used to have animal rights in the subtitle, and now it has animal liberation in the subtitle. And that change animated the way I went through and rewrote the entire book. I had when I was uh, working professionally as, uh, you know, in the nonprofit world, I was focused, I suppose, more on animal rights than where I am now after 
leaving and basically uh, going in my own way and doing uh, veganism and animal liberation on my terms. Mm. It's sort of parallel to uh, something that you often bring up, which is marrying myself. Yeah. <laughs> I decided that I would go uh, on my terms and, and do veganism on my terms rather than do it uh, as a sort of a more institutionalized way. Yeah. So yeah, talk a little more about that if you would. What what were your own terms and what are your own terms around veganism? Well, uh, I think to me, uh, well, you know, the example of, of letting go of the car, for example, right? Uh, the whole idea of rewilding and self-rewilding. Uh, getting in touch with who I am on this earth and who I am as a member of a greater bio community. Uh, the working for ideas that are important to liberation without ever letting them go is important to me. So for example, if you're working at a school or for an organization, even the best, you're looking at particular courses or particular campaigns, oftentimes. And so you may not be able to follow a certain community of animals and defend them uh, for good. You might need to move on to the next thing because it's part of work, right? So for example, uh, the deer. I live in Pennsylvania and deer, deer are such a big issue defending deer against all the onslaughts, right, that they have to deal with, and particularly the deer at the national park that I live right next to. So I live, I'm a neighbor to Valley Forge National Historical Park and its population of deer. And for, during work, deer are a campaign. Uh, Endangered Species Act, you know, one species at a time is usually what you're working for, for one brief at a time. Whereas when you're working in animal liberation philosophy as a whole, it never ends. You're, you know, you're always championing, 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 say it for me, championing <laughs> a particular community or a particular cause, and you never let go. And that, so you're constantly evolving. Your idea of defending a particular community is constantly evolving. So as I defend the deer, the local deer, I'm learning more and more about coyotes in our midst and how coyotes function as communities. I can take that as far as it goes, as far as I can. I'll be learning about coyotes and ungulates, you know, deer, rams, elk, as long as I live. And I'll be writing on them and the importance of respecting them for who they are, for a group of beings who learns from their elders, for example. And I do writing for counterpunch.org. And I do my, my work in my studio for the art of animal liberation. And I do talks that my patrons in, in the Patreon studio enable me to do for free to anybody, anybody can access them uh, anywhere in the world. And uh, I never have to give up 
defending any particular community because it's time to go on to the next thing. I can always follow, I can always learn more about coyotes and how to defend them and their interactions with deer and how we as humans can take our hands off them. And you mentioned that if you have a spirit animal, you would say it's the coyote. <laughs> that That is surprising to me in some ways because I would think it would be kind of a more peaceful animal, not a not a carnivore or an omnivore. I'm not I'm not even sure if coyotes are omnivores or exclusively um, carnivores. Yeah, they are not exclusively carnivores. Uh, they're a canid species and they are generalists. <laughs> so they that means they eat just about everything. So if you leave anything out, they're going to go find it. <laughs> Usually if there are confrontations with coyotes, it's because people have left food out, perhaps inadvertently, or perhaps they're purposely feeding the animals, which uh, should never be done. Because what happens then is they'll be habituated to humans. They'll keep coming around and that gets them into trouble. So the coyotes, um, yeah, I think that's true, that it's unexpected for a vegan to, to want to have a spirit animal who does eat prey on other animals. Um, but to me, part of my veganism, really at the core of my veganism, is respect for the balance of nature. So I know as a primate, you know, that's one way I think we're lucky <laughs> uh, in our in our humanity uh if you will you know we're lucky that as primates we are generalist or mainly herbivores right so we don't have to eat other animals okay so that is a circumstance of our biology and our birth so um great we can be vegan biologically and as a social move which is what veganism is veganism means that we don't have this domineering attitude and practice to all the other animals. So it's a removal of the mindset of human supremacy. But other animals are not partaking of that social movement. They are living on their terms and I respect them on their terms. And that to me is the core of veganism. And indeed, if we look back to the early vegans, the people who founded the movement, there's a beautiful piece called Veganism Defined written in 1951. If you want to find it published, it lives on the International Vegetarian Union's website, ivu.org. Veganism defined was sort of a mission statement developed in 1951 by the founders of the vegan movement. And they mentioned more than once in that statement, the importance of not interfering with other animals' evolution. So to me, respecting a coyote or respecting a deer who's a herbivore, are, they're equal. Um, there's no difference in that respect. That's what a coyote does. That's what a wolf does. So my view is take our hands off their necks, let them balance themselves, get our guns and our poisons and our traps and our snares out and our birth control pharmaceuticals away from them and let them manage their own communities on their own terms. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> very well said. I tend to agree. 
can you talk a little about how you see the difference between animal rights and animal liberation? Like me, you're a lawyer. So perhaps you have a particular conception of what the word rights even means. Yes, and like you, I've been running from the law for many years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I first got involved in law school because I wanted to do something with animal rights. And I had an independent study, a wonderful professor guided me through that, worked in constitutional law area. And my final paper, which I published in at the time, the Seton Hall Constitutional Law Journal was on non-human great ape personhood. And it was a model brief that the Supreme Court would see. It was the particular plaintiff in my model brief was a chimpanzee. And the idea was that the court would see this being, this plaintiff, uh, as a person. And that, of course, I was not the first uh, to work in that area. There was the Great Ape Project uh, published in 1993. I did get involved with the Great Ape Project because it became a nonprofit as well as a book. So I worked with Peter Singer as a volunteer. And I was steeped in the whole idea of bringing our constitutional law ideas to bear on the way we treat other living beings. And after a while, I came to the conclusion that it's problematic to where I don't regret having done it. it. It's a great journey to do. I mean, it's important to know what human rights is about and how we how we designed human rights law and constitutional law at you know, its most essential, which is protections from torture, for example, and protection of our right to our private affairs, our right to life, our right not to be experimented on. Um, that is just a very, very, very compelling uh, area of law. But I decided that, for one thing, it was just too slow. I mean, if you decided that dolphins or chimpanzees or elephants uh, should have rights tantamount to human rights only on a more basic level. Then how many species are there? And they're all biocommunities and all of them need respect. And we all we need to live in harmony with all of these biocommunities. And we would it would take us centuries to get through all the constitutional arguments to respect them all. So it's got that. And I also noticed that, you, and I did this too, partly in my law review article, in my model brief, to a certain extent, when we're working for animal rights, we're proving that they're like us, or they're intelligent, or they could do certain things. Mm -hmm. There's some things that, that about them that we relate to in ourselves. That might not at all be what's important to them, and it usually isn't. So what we tend to do is habituate them again, um, we tend to lose sight of who they would be on their terms in their own community, not having to prove they can count money and so forth. So I think it's problematic on a number of ways. And I started shifting from the animal rights philosophy, which I learned a lot from, to a more liberationist philosophy. 
And that was this, that we need to respect habitat. We need to respect entire bio communities at once as a holistic idea, ideal. And that we need to do it together and that it needs to involve a human mindset shift. Mm. One that gets us out of the role of domineering, of subjugating, of thinking of ourselves as the you know grand poobah of earth. And so it brings up the question of who we would be if human supremacy weren't what we're steeped in. What else? I mean, we've never lived without it. Who would we be? And so that's why I think this whole idea right now that I'm my stage of the vegan right now is trying as much as I can to rewild my mind and my body, you know, trying to feel what it is to be a primate on this earth, because I better know it if I'm going to be, you know, a member of a greater bio community. So interesting. Wow. It reminds me a little bit of some of what I've read of the Stoics, who like one of the practices that they that they recommended was like voluntary poverty, you know, at least like once a week or once a month to purposely make yourself uncomfortable and um, go without money, go without food, go without, you know, adequate clothing and warmth and just to, just to know what it felt like to be uncomfortable and be vulnerable. <laughs> and I don't, I don't practice that, but, um, but it is, it is interesting, again, just how far we've come from our animal nature. Maybe, have you ever come across a documentary that I, I saw it on YouTube years ago, but it's called The Superior Human? Question mark. No, no, tell it's, me. Yeah, I, I really recommend it. It was revelatory for me, and, and it could be just, you know, kind of old news for you because you've already been exploring these ideas, but it's basically about, you know, this, this assumption that we humans are superior and that even in, you know, opting not to eat animals, well, that's like a benevolent act of, you know, an inherently superior being <laughs> and isn't that gracious of us to do. But this, this documentary just explores the different kinds of intelligence that all other species have. And, and it points out kind of what you were getting at that, you know, we assess other animals' intelligence on the basis of human intelligence, but we don't assess our intelligence on the basis of bats intelligence or dogs intelligence or, you know, all these other beings who have all these abilities and, you know, senses and information that we, we just don't even have any glimmer of. And it really, it really caused a bit of a shift in me because I realized, oh, isn't, isn't that convenient how when we rate everyone else's intelligence, we do it, you know, we do it on the basis of ours. Um, so that's, well, you've, and you've done a lot of teaching too. So you've taught at Rutgers and um, Case Western Reserve. Am I going to? No, no, no. Um, so Rutgers Wayne Law. State, Wayne State University. No, no. no. Uh, Widener, <laughs> Delaware Law. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I wasn't even close. Um, but at Rutgers is where my parents both got their college degrees. Um, so, you know, I have a special kinship with them. And that, of course, is where another, you know, animal activist, Gary Francione, and, and another lawyer teaches. I, I just wonder you know, how your work overlaps with his and what you, you know, 
are you guys colleagues or what's your, you know, what's your overlap with him and his work? So we, yes, um, Gary Francione actually invited me to come there and teach. Oh, wow. We, we, we co-taught an animal law seminar. Yes. Uh, I so think he's a uh, very controversial figure. I've I've learned a lot from reading his, you know, reading his work, especially as a fellow lawyer. Um, and it's it's been just viewing it from a distance. It's you know he just raises, you know, pe people get very, you know, he kind of invokes <laughs> controversy and invites controversy, and so it's interesting to observe and yeah so you you know him yeah so go on I'm curious yes how. yes and and uh, so i think they're um going back to the difference between animal rights and animal liberation at the time i taught there i was definitely in the animal rights mode um and gary's work uh, talk or deals with animals in commercial settings. And I think that with the animal advocacy movement, to a great extent, what the movement has done has been to focus on animals in commercial settings, perhaps too much, to the point where we tend to lose track of liberation itself, of the idea of respecting animals on their terms, who they would be. For I just to give you an example of how I think about this and um, the difference between, say, where my work is going now from where I was when I was learning quite a great deal from Gary Francione. But, Again, I, I've kind of branched into another direction. Um, Gary Franciona would say, for example, that, you know, the animals need one right, and it's the right not to be property, and that is abolitionism, in a nutshell, right? And, okay, I agree, and that's where we, that was the framework we were teaching with. But more and more, I think that animals don't just need one right, right not to be property, because that can mean there's no animals at all. If we only think in terms of animals in commercial settings, um, if they are all, if, if we take the animals as property away from that system, then you don't have that system anymore, which is all well and good. But have we do what are we doing to fill the vacuum there what's the ideal in other words we could all live on mars with elon musk and not have animals as property but we won't have animals at all right so yes we've taken away the animals as property paradigm great but in the meantime animals are disappearing we are living in the sixth great extinction and they're, appear they're disappearing every day. Now they're losing territory every day. So what are we doing to defend, as you said, like a lot of us don't know about these other communities of animals, right? We don't pay attention to them. Um, who's around us, right? What What is there in our midst that we can say, that we can defend? 
And so, yeah, I'm, I'm concerned that just dealing with animals and what they have the right not to be isn't telling us enough about who they can be and what we need to make sure that they can be. And that's beings who can flourish, who can thrive on their terms. So I would say that I have learned and absorbed what Gary Francione is doing. And I, I appreciate that. And I wouldn't be who I am, the thinker that I am without that. And I've also gone in another direction, looking for something more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I myself, I've always thought that the, you know, the legal framework for looking at animal rights and the changes that, that I would like to see happen for non-human animals, I've just never been comfortable or satisfied with our, our legal framework as a, as a means for, for accomplishing that. I really do think that it, it, you know, it needs to be a more fundamental just shift in, in viewpoint and perspective. And um, I, I think your point is very well raised about not just seeing, you know, animals as, as the victims that they are in our food system, but, you know, seeing animals in their full, <laughs> you know, their full being and, and living. And I love, I love the work of people like Jonathan Balcom, who have written books about animal pleasure and, you know, just highlight, you know, just the joy and the love and the families and just, you know, all of the good things. I think, yeah, I think you're, I think you're probably right. I think, I think it maybe, you know, it's maybe the, the horrible suffering stuff that can prompt the more immediate shift to maybe stop eating them, but that more fundamental long-term, you know, just shift from human superiority to our, you know, respect. I don't see how that can happen without, without seeing, you know, the, the other things about animals, you know, the, the real things, like all the things that they're doing when they're not being subjugated and tortured. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So much. And even getting about. beyond this idea of you know, there's a saying or a slogan, friends, not food. And that still leaves in place their relationships to us. It doesn't perceive them on their terms. So, for example, when we hold up the pig as though the pig were our pet and as though that were the ideal, we're missing something. Uh, are we going to ask, are we going to challenge ourselves to take our hands off them, to stop making them even into our friends, our, even into our playmates, even that? Are we able to say, well, I love my dog, I love my cat, and because I love my cat, I challenge myself, I challenge humanity, step back, should we have ever taken the wild out of wild cats? Should we have ever confined them within the human world? Was that fair? Yep, yep, I agree. <laughs> and my immediate instinctive answer is no, we should not have done that. I, I had a cat, I've had, you know, I've lived with several cats and 
my um, my vegan cat Sammy, whom I lost about four years ago, he was he was sort of my gateway into really really thinking more about cats and what what they really are in their nature, you know. And did you ever see that documentary about? I think it was called Ketty about it was a Turkish documentary about cats. No. It was, yeah, it was, it's a fascinating documentary. I saw it when I was living in Boston and apparently in Istanbul, there was a big issue with rats, you know, infesting the city. And so they, they brought in cats to control the rat problem. And then the cats, you know, um, multiplied and kind of created their whole, their whole infrastructure in the city and which, which still exists. And you know, cats are everywhere, mostly living, mostly living on their own. But because there are so many of them, some of them have been, you know, fed by people or or even, you know, formally adopted by people and taken into their households. And in this movie, it does a really great job of tracking the lives of these cats, you know, the the independent ones, the free living ones, and all the things they do in a day and just all the places that they go. You know, they live these lives of just interest and adventure and they do all these, you know, funny things. Um, and then you see the the domesticated ones, you know, the lucky ones who are brought into a household and, you know, they just get lethargic and, you know, they gain weight and sometimes they have kind of a, you know, a sort of jungle gym or something inside the living room that that's their entertainment for the day, but it's just when I saw that movie, I just really came away just thinking this is just wrong what we've, what we've done to cats. Um, yeah, so it's, yeah, there are no no really easy, easy answers. I think Gary Francione talks about that too with dogs and cats about how, you know, really we shouldn't, you know, we should get away from this concept of domestic domesticating animals for our pleasure. And yet at the same time, at this point in time, there are all these dependent beings and shelters and yeah, so it's a big, big can of worms. Um, so how much do you think about being vegan on a daily basis? You know, is it it's obviously the focus of your life's work? How much, how much, you know, headspace and heart space does it occupy on a regular basis for you? Well, I work in my studio for the art of animal liberation every day. Uh, so I'm always coming up with something to write and I like to try to get it out to the, beyond the choir. So uh, yeah, I'm always writing something or I'm always planning to go to a conference. And uh, now there's the American Vegan Center in Philadelphia, that's right near me. I can take a bus and get there. So that's an outlet for community outreach and learning and teaching. So yeah, it's, uh, I, I guess I, every waking moment, <laughs> yeah. probably every sleeping moment. Yeah, yeah. Who I am. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me, makes sense to me. All right, well, I've got just a couple more questions for you. It's so interesting. I love, 
I love <laughs> I can chat with someone who just really thinks so deeply about these things because I can tell that you've, you know, spent more than more than half a lifetime, you know, really, really pondering and thinking deeply and just beyond the surface of even, you know, it's a big change just to change how we eat. But then to change, you know, the fundamentals of, of how we think and how we conceive of ourselves in the world, like that's that's a whole that's a whole other level. Um, so where's the best place for people to find you and your work and the arts that you're engaging in on behalf of the animals? Well, I would say either uh, the studio for the art of animal liberation, which is easy to find at Patreon com slash Lee Hall. Uh, and I also do now and then I do a blog entry and that's at veganplace.blog. I would I would say those are the main places. I am on Facebook for anybody who's there and I do have a Facebook page called On Their Own Terms. I'm on social media. Now I'm kind of escaping from Twitter or X or whatever it's going to be called next week, right? Uh, and I'm finding my way into places like Mastodon and Blue Sky. So that's kind of in flux, you know, there's a lot of okay. going on right now. There's a, an exodus uh, right. amongst uh, people who have had it with, the, with Elon Musk uh, <laughs> over at Twitter. Right, right, right. He's, yeah, he's not super vegan friendly, is my impression. Not at all. <laughs> uh, Musk is, uh, first of all, derides veganism and also uses animals in testing with the other, with, you know, Musk has several companies and one of them is Neuralink and uh, that company uses pigs and primates in brain research. This is particularly intrusive, hideous research. So no, Musk is far, far, far from a vegan. And I think that Musk has this ideal that the humanity is going to colonize Mars and that we don't have to worry about any of the animals who right now live on Earth. They're not interesting to Musk as far as I can tell. Um, and that's another issue with EVs, right? Musk is into the... Right. production of Tesla vehicles as though that's going to save us all. And and really that doesn't do anything about the fragmentation of habitat and the way humans have taken over every space of the earth. It's just going to make sprawl worse, I think, the EV thing. So right, right. Well I guess in, in Elon's defense, I would <laughs> my impression is that he'd be just as willing to exploit other humans, absolutely. Other humans, <laughs> he'd, he'd conduct experiments on humans if he could get away. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely right. Non-speciesist in that in that sense. Um, all right, Lee. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We'll include all that information that you mentioned in the show notes so that people can follow you and your amazing, thoughtful work. Um, final question, which I like to ask all of my guests and which you're probably well prepared for but is there a particular word that for you sums up what being vegan is all about a particular word yes 
I'd have to say liberation. The liberation of my own being as I go through life on this earth and liberation for the other beings. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. And I love that because you're right. I feel, I do feel so much freer <laughs> as, as a vegan. It, it's funny how people have this perception of it as restrictive or oh. burdensome. And it's, yeah, I feel just the opposite. So thank you for that. Absolutely. So when somebody says, does anybody, they're planning a get together or seminars in person and they say, does anybody have any dietary restrictions? <laughs> like right. veganism uh, and gluten-free. And I'll be like, I don't think of my diet as restricted. I think of it as liberated. Right, right, right. And I don't think of that as, you know, that other non-vegan stuff as, as food. As food anyway. Yeah, no, sometimes when people apologize to me at, at some sort of event that there's nothing for me to eat, I, you know, I often think to myself, don't worry about me, like, I'll mm -hmm. be fine. You know, I'm not going to starve to death. It's, it's mm -hmm. the people eating this stuff and producing this stuff that, you know, have a lot more to be concerned about. Absolutely. But all right, well, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you for joining us on The Vegan Posse. And we close every episode by taking 30 seconds of silence for all of the suffering animals, human and non-human, who desire, as we all do, safety, happiness, and the freedom to live out their lives without interference. So Lee, I invite you to join me in 30 seconds of silence for the animals, and we'll conclude with the sound of the bell. Thank you, Lee, and thank you, Posse. See you next time. Until then, stay strong and stay true.